All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. It's from Ecclesiastes 1. All things are full of weariness. To some degree, we all wrestle with the weight and the weariness of the world around us. We, we wrestle with the weight and the weariness in our own hearts, fumbling with the answers to the questions that often haunt us. What is the meaning of all this? What am I building? What does it mean to be successful? What do I desire? Is God who he says he is? Is hope a reasonable response? Does anything really last? Will I ever score tickets to Taylor Swift concert? We hear King Solomon yell, everything is meaningless. And oftentimes we struggle to offer a sufficient rebuttal. Maybe we're born, we live, we work, we accumulate, and we die. And that's it. Ultimately, we can't outwork our mortality and death wins in the end. Well, this summer we're spending some time in the Psalms. And something I love about the Psalms is their comfortability with our humanity. We are emotional creatures, and God gives us a language with which to speak our joys and our sorrows. Well, this morning we'll be in Psalm 39, which uh, many consider to be a lament. Now, I've said before that, that lamentation is the language of holy desperation. It is God's invitation to come as we are, not as we should be. And it's a desperation that God hears and that he doesn't ignore. In fact, I would say that uh, lamentation, uh, it proves the presence of, even the strength of our faith and not the absence of it. In lament, we learn a lot about ourselves, our joy, our anger, our doubt, our despair. But even more, we learn about who God is, that he is a God who can take it all, but he's a God who also can use it to shape us. Uh, I recently read a strange little novel called Grief is the Thing with Feathers. Uh, and in this book, there are three characters, three perspectives. One is a dad who has just lost his wife uh, to an accident. And then the next perspective is actually uh, his two sons, so two boys. They're, they're kind of one perspective together. And then a crow. And at one point, the, the dad and the crow are talking, you know, as we all do, um, and the crow says, you know, I, I find humans dull except in grief. And I think there's something about our grief and our willingness to enter into it and to be shaped by it that is compelling. And God's invitation is one of refinement, but more it is one of triumph because he makes a way. We don't wallow in our laments, but we walk forward trusting that ours is a living hope that will not fade away. You know, 1 Thessalonians 4, it says that we do not grieve as others who have no hope. We are a hopeful people. And even in our, even in our grieving, even in our laments, we have hope. So the crow says, I find humans dull. Speaking of crows... I find humans dull except in grief. Well, I would say I find humans dull except in hope. 
We're going to read Psalm 39 together. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. The word of the Lord. I want to look at this psalm just in three parts. The psalmist's distress, the psalmist's deliverance, and the psalmist's direction. So let's begin with his distress. Uh, We know Vincent Van Gogh as one of the most celebrated artists in history. Vinny, as his friends called him, experienced a success that is unimaginable. But sadly, he didn't live to see it happen. While he was alive, he sold one painting, and it didn't even sell for an impressive amount of money. Van Gogh struggled with depression. He was in an asylum for a time, and ultimately his despair um, uh, forced him, or not forced him, but it led to him taking his own life. He was incredibly prolific, but he often despaired at the seeming futility of his work. And while he was alive, his calling often felt more like a curse because of his lack of commercial success. He writes, a great fire burns within me, and passersby only see a wisp of smoke. What of that great burning fire in each of us that's just perceived by others as little more than a wisp of smoke? Russ Ramsey, a writer and speaker, writes that Van Gogh was held captive by an insatiable appetite to capture the world he wanted while being unable to connect with the world he had. And it seemed to be killing him. So for him, did his, did, his, did his art matter? Did his life matter? Did he need popularity to validate his value, to validate his success? Did he scorn the success of others only to move further into despair? Maybe wondering if all his work, all his talent was for nothing. And in the words of Ecclesiastes, Perhaps all his work is vanity. Perhaps it was all a striving after the wind, 
an inevitable surrender to despair. Well, I think the writer here in Psalm 39 is experiencing a similar tension. He's trying to guard himself, to keep it together, to remain loyal to a God that he knows is faithful, but he struggles to reconcile that reality with the wickedness around him. Perhaps echoing the words of Job, who said, Why do the wicked live? Why do they reach old age and grow mighty in power? He sees all this success. He sees the success of the wicked around him, and he wonders if such prosperity is an indication of God's favor. And if so, where does he fit in? But this leads to a greater awareness of his own mortality. In verse 4, he says, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Our lives are fleeting. Our days are a few handbreadths. We are a mere breath. We go about as a shadow. It would be a great Hallmark card. What are you trying to tell me here? So three times throughout this entire psalm, a word is used that means vanity. It means meaningless. And what's interesting is, is the psalmist's anger here, provoked by evil persons and their success and accumulation of wealth at his expense, was based on something insubstantial. To become so upset and angry because of the wicked was to grant them an importance and a permanence they did not really have. And in the midst of this, he is grasping for something that will hold, that will provide some relief, some, some relief in his distress. And this kind of uh, the existential crisis leads him to a better place, but it's a place that demands greater examination of his heart. So it's his distress and him navigating this distress that leads to his deliverance. We see in verse 7 that he says, And now, O Lord, what do I, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Now, I, this isn't some like, lazy default to like a generalized hope, as if he's saying, well, I know I'm supposed to believe that God is good. I know if I'll just have faith, everything will get better. His hope begins in a different place. It begins with a confession. Deliver me from all my transgressions. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Now we saw in the beginning of the psalm, he's trying to keep it together. He's, he's remaining silent in the face of the wicked's prosperity. It's, and that silence really is, is kind of a, a trust in what God is going to do. But notice here that he's silent again. He says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth. And this is a different kind of silence. It's the awareness of and the confession of his own sin. It's this unbearable weight of God's discipline in his life. Of realizing that the things he may be clinging to, uh, what is dear to him, are merely consumed like a moth. 
that again, he's reminded that he is a mere breath. And I think it for us, it exposes the insufficiency of, of our meager hopes, of our broken desires, of our disordered loves. We can't put our hope in multiple things. We can't hoard glory and gold while at the same time trust God with all we have. We are a vapor, a mere breath. So why should we continue to attain deep satisfaction in the things moths and rust will destroy? Confession of sin is hard. (laughs) Uh, It it challenges us to, to really examine our own hearts. And it exposes our broken desires, but it shapes our, our, our hearts toward redemptive ends. And while initially it may seem impossible to abandon the allure, uh, the allure of fleeting things, these rhythms of repentance redirect our hearts toward a God in whom we can put our hope. But this confession, this kind of change assumes a God who will hear us and and, and even a God who won't grow tired of us. A God who is not threatened by our attempts at a life without him or with a life with a little bit of him. A God who can even sympathize with the burden of a meaningless life. A God who does not merely observe from a distance, but who enters in. And when it seems all our longings our desires, our hopes, when it seems all those things will surrender to the darkness, Jesus redeems us from a meaningless world by subjecting himself to it. He experiences the vanity of the world so that we could be freed from it. He experiences separation from the Father, redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's strange that we would find meaning, that we would find hope in a cross. To the wicked, to those who are perishing, even to those who are prospering, the cross is folly. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But even more, because of His resurrection, we have been raised with Christ, empowered by His Spirit, to bear the glory and hope of resurrection in the places to which we are called. Now, it would be easy to think that that hope is the goal. Hope is the treasure. But the treasure is not hope. The treasure is Christ himself. I'm going to read this quote. Unfortunately, I don't remember where it came from, but I promise it came from somewhere. So if you're out there, just give yourself a little credit today. It's a good quote, though, you know. John Doe. Trust in Christ is the acknowledgement that the only thing of true value is Christ himself. Whatever else might be considered valuable, even the law, is of only value if it serves the purpose of Christ and draws the believer deeper into connection with him. And faith is not some alternative token of worth, a refined spirituality admirable in itself. To the contrary, faith as trust in Christ is a declaration of bankruptcy, a radical and shattering recognition that the only capital in God's economy is the gift of Christ. 
a gift given without regard to any other criterion of worth. Faith as trust in Christ is a declaration of our bankruptcy. It's a declaration of all the things we try to do to to save ourselves, uh, to store up things for our security, for our safety, for our comfort. It doesn't compare to the treasure that is Jesus, the beauty that is Jesus, the mystery that is Jesus, the life that is in Jesus. Our hope and our meaning uh, depends uh, not only on our confession that, that we are sinners, that we have need, that we need a Savior, but our confession that, that Christ is the answer to that, that He gives us what we need. So his distress brings him to a place of examining his own heart where he's delivered in a sense. And this sets for him a direction. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Uh, in the, the tradition of God's people, this psalmist recognizes that he is a sojourn. He's a pilgrim, a guest. And we have seen throughout Scripture that God leading his people out, leading his people into exile, that oftentimes the people feel like they have no home. And God continuing to tell them that, that I'm with you. In a sense, I am your home. And though this psalmist is recognizing that and feeling that, feeling the weight of pilgrimage, his destination is sure. We read earlier in 1 Peter, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We are not passive pilgrims. We're not passive waiters. We're not aimless wanderers. But we have a Jesus who goes before us, a Jesus who is with us. Uh, Peter Lightheart in his book, God of Hope, um, describes this beautifully. He says, The restless who hope in God are capable of deep and abiding contentment. Every step on the way is a step toward Christ, but equally a step in and with Christ. Every step moves toward glory. Each step is also itself glorious. Every way station along the way is an experience of intimacy with Jesus, our hope of glory. In Christ, the hopeful are neither aimless wanderers nor compulsive settlers. We aren't stuck in the present, nor do we wander without knowing where we are going. We're always already, I'm sorry, we're already always where we are going. We taste now and always the future heavenly gift. We do not know what we will be, yet what we will be is what we now in part already are. Hope is hope for glory. It is also hope for life. And as a result, we can now experience a deep significance precisely in those areas where the psalmist and others 
and Scripture felt most oppressed. Jesus restores meaning to our wisdom, to our labor, to our love, and to our life. He breathes new life into our imaginations that we would thrive in this space, this tension of the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. We have purpose. We have meaning because of what, is, what Jesus has done. That he is in the business of making all things new, and we are a part of that. 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. <clears throat> Nikola Jokic uh, is a uh, NBA basketball player. Many consider him at this point to be the best basketball player in the world. Sorry, LeBron. Uh, he's a two-time MVP, and uh, recently he has just won his his first NBA Finals, but also the first NBA Finals of um, his team, uh, the Denver Nuggets. This is a big deal. Well, in the midst of all this celebration, you know, he's at the press conference afterwards, and someone asks him, well, I mean, how does it feel to be an NBA championship? Uh, and this is a guy who grew up in poverty uh, overseas and, uh, you know, became just obsessed with basketball and worked his way up and you know, had a lot of people doubting him over, the, over time and wasn't sure he was going to be able to uh, succeed in the NBA. And he's asked, now, after all of this, all your hard work from where you've come from, how does it feel to be an NBA championship? He says, it's good, it's good. The job is done. We can go home now. His longing was for home. That's where he wanted to go. He said, I'm, I've done my job. It's great, but I want to go home. For us, that longing for home is part of our identity. And this reality of new creation, it, it does invigorate our lives and our work today. Let us not get consumed by this rat race of fleeting success but lean into what Trevor Sides calls a vocation of grace. That hopeful posture that depends not on the works of our hands, but on the life and work of Jesus, who has prepared a place for us in eternity. We pray. Father, would you help us Lord, I pray that even just by uh, the gracious and generous work of, of your spirit, that you would uh, stir up something in our hearts and in our minds that, that, that would at least get our attention, that would at least have us ask questions about what it is we desire, what it is we hope for, that would even um, expose maybe some of our doubt, of our unbelief, Lord, I thank you that you are a God who uh, draws us to repentance and kindness. Lord, that we know that you are a God who disciplines those you love. So I ask in the name of Jesus that you would even now shape us 
confront us, refine us. In the name of Jesus, amen.